Welcome to The People I Know, a philosophical podcast with and about the diverse people I've met and loved over the years as an African-American female thinker, academic, artist, dancer, dog lover. Today's guest is one of my very best friends, Syl Ko. She is co-author of Afroism, Essays on Pop Culture, Feminism, and Black Veganism, and I hope you enjoy. I was trying to not do this in a sweatshirt, but it's cold, so it's as good as it can. I should have worn something. I mean, if I, if I remembered I was doing this today, I would have... <laughs> <laughs> okay so first things first just introduce yourself um and first like hey Syl <laughs> all right I'm Syl and um, <laughs> <laughs> what titles you have what your education is that's what you know your qualifications <laughs> um well I'm a paralegal I have I'm not qualified for that <laughs> I just sort of applied for the job and got it because I have a philosophy background. Um, and so we met in a philosophy program, in our master's program. And then I have a second master's in philosophy, though my thesis was different because I was in a PhD program and along the way you have to do a master's thesis. Um, but then I, I left the last year of my PhD program and now I'm just kind of an independent researcher, I guess you would call it. So my day mm -hmm. job is I'm a paralegal and then my sort of second job I don't consider it a job it's recreational yeah the independent researcher on animal ethics or the, the 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 connections between animal ethics decolonial thinking history of the philosophy of science like those kinds of things awesome and what's your uh what is your bachelor's in i have a bachelor's in, in chemistry yeah <laughs> well i mean yeah it's not like completely unrelated because of course I mean, the, the way I got into a master's program in philosophy without having a background was because I was, uh, you know, I had studied analytical chemistry and people in analytic philosophy love anyone who does any sort of natural science kind of work. So that's how I got into the program. So I had no, I had no qualifications for that either. But, you know, I did write a writing sample. I got recommendations. I took a few classes at a community college while I was working in a lab, um, which actually I originally did that because I was reading a, a book and I didn't understand some of it. It was more contemporary philosophy, which wasn't my thing. So I took night classes. And then when I was taking the night classes, the professors all said, you, you should be in philosophy. And so I said, well, okay. And so that's what I did. So then I went, to, I went to San Francisco State where they accepted me based on my science credentials. Um, and then actually, you know, to be honest, I really like history of philosophy of science also because I, mm. you know, I like science stuff. And even when I was working as a chemist, I was, even though I was doing kind of boring, pharmaceutical work or whatever, I was really interested in these, um, the history of a lot of concepts that we use in science. And then that, you know, I started studying those things when I was in philosophy, though I also kind of moved into animal ethics. But the two, the two inform each other because how we think about animals and humans have a lot yeah. to do with how our ideas about science have changed. Yeah. So one of the smartest people I know. <laughs> Love you. And um, as I had mentioned in your introduction, you're a co-author of Aphorism, Essays on Pop Culture, Feminism, and Black Veganism. And Black Veganism is not what anybody thinks it is. So, <laughs> so that's why she's continuing to do other work here. <laughs> yep. Trying to rectify that situation, but we can come back around to that. <laughs> um, um, okay, the stupid question, get this out of the way first. What kind of mixed are you? You mean like what are my ethnic backgrounds? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Isabel wants to say, so what do you mean by that? <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So that helps clarify. I should have asked got that clarification earlier because when I printed it out, I was like, what does that mean? Okay. Well, on one side, I'm 
like American black. I mean, so my mother, her side is like American black people and Native American. And on my father's side, Poland, he's from Poland. But he has some mixture because they traveled through Mongolia, blah, blah, blah. They have this whole thing. So on both sides, they have their own kind of thing going on. But yeah, so I'm like American black and then my other side, white Polacks. And um, why does that matter in your life? Like when and why do you find that it matters? Now it maybe doesn't matter so much. When I was growing up, I think it might have mattered, though I didn't see it that way, uh, mm -hmm. because I actually didn't think at all about race until I was forced to in college. <laughs> I, th I went to Temple University, and at the time, and they might still have this, but at the time, you had to take two race credits. I took one early on just to get out of the way, because I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, well, I, was kept, <laughs> I love to care about race bullshit. So I, my first one, I just zoned out the entire time and just barely, you know, slid by with like a B plus or something. And then I had to take one more. I was dreading it so much that I waited until the summer before, like I had to, in order to graduate, I had to take this class during the summer. That's how long I waited. And so up until then, I didn't think much about race. Like my, my dad always said, you're Polish. That's what he would say, you know? And it was always weird, you know, we'd go to these Polish events, like, you know, the Kostruszko parade and people would be looking at us and they're like, what are you doing here? And I was like, Polish. <laughs> you know, I, 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 and then there'd be like those weird times, like when I was in Florida in elementary school, it was very kind of socially segregated. And I think they were trying to deal with their race issues. And so they would have this thing and, and there was, you know, one day in the year they would say, okay, all the kids who are white stand up so they can do a count. Okay. So then they would count all the kids who are black stand up. <laughs> they would do a count. Wow. There was like one Asian person. So I, you know, they, maybe they were in the same predicament as I was because it was almost like, you know, almost like how we talk about race today. They're like, the Asians are just, you know, disappeared from the conversation and then you know every single time a teacher would be like you know you didn't stand up and I was just like because at home it wasn't like you're white or you're black you know we were just like well we're the co-family and we're Polish there was no you know we, there was no vocabulary on race and yeah. so some teachers would be like well you know I don't really consider you black I'll put you in white and then other teachers would be like well I don't consider you white so I'll put you in black you know and I remember just coming home and I was completely like I don't even know how to you know I don't know how to think about this but there was definitely this kind of um, a very explicit attitude that blackness was bad in the house. And I think that's mm. why my dad didn't want to venture there. And even, he wouldn't even think about my mother as black. He, he called her mixed. And actually I knew someone else who was like this, whenever there was like a, a beautiful light skinned woman, they're like, well, she can't be black. You know, she's, cause she's so mm. beautiful. Like, you know, actually someone on our program. Yeah. <laughs> that's good to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so there was, you know, and because of that, it was like, you didn't want to be compared with a black person. You didn't think of yourself mm. as a black person. I knew I wasn't white. In school, mm. I would never fit in anywhere, though I think that had more to do with, you know, being ASD, which I didn't know I was until I was 26. So that didn't mm. help. You know, everyone just knew I was just weird and bonkers, but I, I didn't fit in at all anyway. Mm. Um, and so then when I went, took this class that I was first <laughs> my professor, he was amazing. I mean, he talked about race, not in this kind of like superficial way, you know, where the way I think we talk about it now, but he talked about it as a philosophical concept. So I was right away very attracted to how he was talking about it. 
And then that was the first time I remember I just came home on the first day of class and I was like, oh my God, I'm black. <laughs> like that was like, <laughs> and I remember my father in the background, he's like, ha, ha, she thinks she's black. Like that was the, you know, that was the, the thing in our house where it was just like, what's wrong with Syl? Why is she talking about being black or whatever? Um, and, and so then I, I started to think, <laughs> you know, in this kind of more deep way for the first time yeah. and started making sense of, oh, this is why maybe I felt a certain way, you know, and mm. like, oh, I, now I remember when, you know, anyone was black, it was considered bad or they were stupid or they were ugly or, you know, they're not civilized, they're barbaric, they're not exemplars of humanity and then anything white was. And my mm. dad, and, you know, I would start to remember my father would explicitly say, you don't bring a nigger home, you don't bring a Jew home, you don't bring a Chinese mm. person home, you come with a mm. white person. That was always mm. a thing. Actually, to this day, all my siblings are, you know, not my brother because he's he's not with anyone and probably never will mm. be physical stuff, but all my sisters, they're with white men. And mm. for a long time, that was what I thought was, you know, was my only option. Like you date white guys, that's it, you know. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, especially as I got a little bit older, I started to kind of think about race a little bit differently. And I started to see how it was a very useful concept more abstractly, how it informs how we think about lots of things, not just human bodies. And mm-hmm. this is my research um, kind of picks up on where I start thinking about race more, kind of like the way that my professor was talking about it in a more philosophical sense. And it reminds me of how we talk about like space or time, these kinds of concepts that we don't have a definition for, but you know, really shapes how we think about lots of different things and informs how we think about lots of different things. Um, and for me, race started to seem more like that, especially as I started to read about the history of science and especially as I got more into Kant, who was the first person to use that term race and to come up with a real theory of race. And I started, mm. oh my God, the development of what we now call natural sciences had a lot to do with what we think of when it comes to race. And it is like a byproduct of modernity. And that's what I think what people mean when they say it's a byproduct of modernity. So when mm. I started to think about it in this kind of bigger, deeper sense, I start. I stopped thinking about it in terms of me individually as this person or that person and started mm-hmm. um, actually hoping to kind of move away from that. And some of my work is like trying to move past using these kinds of things as identity markers, because it's for me a little, you know, when I think of identity, I think of something that's much more heavy and robust. And I'm worried that we're actually clinging to these superficial, malleable categories as things that should define our core existence. Yeah, which moves into when and why doesn't being mixed matter? When does it not matter? <laughs> And this it's because of you that I put down like the dumbasses of the world. Like <laughs> it depends on who you are and what your context mm-hmm. is. I have mm-hmm. friends who are you know who are mixed and it matters all the time to them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um I actually was at an event, it was me, uh, another person who we would call mixed, and then like a black person, and it was like a networking thing, a conference thing. I was one of the keynote speakers and everyone else was pretty much white. Like there wasn't even an Asian person. I don't think there was a native person. Everyone was white. And mm. one guy, he said something not quite insulting or racist, but just kind of annoying, like something like a troll would say. And, you know, mm. whatever. And I just could, it was during Q&A and I was like, yeah, whatever. And then I just kept answering questions. And then afterwards, two other people who were the people of color came to me and they're just like, oh my God, I couldn't even concentrate on anything I was doing because of what this guy said. And I didn't even remember that he had said anything. Like, you know, and so for them, it mattered a lot. Like, you know, like, like I, I became very aware of not being a white person at that moment and you know it just impaired their ability to do networking and stuff like that mm-hmm. you know I have other friends where it matters a lot in dating you know and, and mm-hmm. I've had that experience too where you have some people who see it as exotic and so you mm-hmm. start to feel kind of weird like you know like you don't want to feel <laughs> changeable you know we've talked about this before you don't want to feel yeah 
So it's just like, oh, I like you because you're mixed, you know, and or you find exotic, you know, and, it, and yeah. it, you just start thinking weird. And you're like, you know, like lots of people are mixed with, you know, I have a friend who's German and Polish, for instance, but no one considers her mixed, you know, it's just right. like, like, so it's, just, it's like we're holding on to this weird legacy of like, oh, wow, this this different stock and like we're mixed mm-hmm. into it. And it's like, ooh, la, la, you know, guy <laughs> meant it as a total compliment. And like, I wasn't like, yeah. you know, doing a lecture to him or whatever. But I had that yeah. feeling where it's like, why is it that when it's like a black person or if it's an Asian person, we start using this language of, oh, they're mixed, you know, and then there's mm-hmm. people, there is no, I don't know anybody who's like pure this ethnicity or pure this, <clears throat> we don't call them <clears throat> Right. So it does, I mean, it, so it does remind you of like this really bizarre legacy about race thinking. Um, and like I said, I think depending on the person, it might matter a lot, you know, the, it, depending on how aware you are of it and how much, like how much work you've done on the internal effects of whatever ism you're dealing with. Um, mm-hmm. I think I've dealt with it well, and it probably helps that I sort of an ego issue, you know, so I, <laughs> you know, because people don't talk about that. They, everyone, when they talk about racism or sexism or homophobia, or whatever, everyone talks about the kind of spectacular version of it, the, the external uh-huh. version, you know, like you're lynched, you're shot by the police, you're getting mm-hmm. your votes denied, blah, blah, blah. And those mm-hmm. things are all genuinely terrible. But mm-hmm. I think what's often overlooked is this internal version where you mm-hmm. really start to sabotage yourself. As mm-hmm. Steve Pico, he talked about it as the seeds of an inferiority complex are planted into the, that group and then seeds of mm-hmm. an inferiority complex are planted into the dominant group. And this is useful for two reasons. One is it prevents them from ever working together because if you have someone with a superiority complex and a person with an inferior complex, you're not yeah, going to gonna working with I don't you. like you. I, I fundamentally yeah, exactly. don't like you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then second of all, now you have pretty much bred this person's um, um, disadvantage inside of them. They, You can have a perfect yeah. society and everything, blah, blah, blah. But if you, in your formative life, your formative experiences have been you feeling less than all the time, everything on the outside can be perfect and you're just going to fuck yourself over. And that's what I saw mm-hmm. happening in the conference with these these two women who, they were so upset over some loser. This guy has no bearing on the, their lives <laughs> They ruined a perfectly, a whole yeah. day, you know, just because they were in their own heads. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying this to shame them, but like, this is the kind of work that we need to right. do. We need to pay more attention, I think, to that because we can fix everything else. But if we all yeah. have inside of us this feeling that we're less than, then even if, you know, all the white people in the world are wonderful to you, if you feel inferior and you whatever, you're going to sabotage yourself. And then also right. you won't even be able to notice when progress is made, which is, I think is another issue. You don't even see when things are moving forward because you're so fixated on feeling yourself or you know looking back at calling back to those times when you're feeling bad about yourself as a kid and letting this feed your future you know right i think that's one of the reasons why like this i don't want to call it this this whole black pride movement because i mean that's that's what it has been since 40s 50s 60s 70s um and so this, this kind of resurgence of of being proud of being brown um, in all different kinds of ways. Just, I guess, being proud of bringing anything but white. <laughs> um, but in particular, like, you know, Black is Beautiful. And like, you know, my friend, she wrote a book, uh, literally a book for Black girls. And, you know, all of this is like part of the reason that I'm so happy about it. And a reason to recognize happiness and to be really excited about this is because it's like, <clears throat> it still might not be, no. 
it's still like the ego at work, like super ego at work, but in order to combat like the years and centuries and generations of that internalized shit, like I feel like this kind of thing is good. It's, it's like, okay, we're gonna give you a super dose of this antibiotic, even though you know, the, the, the bacteria is really tiny. So it's like, sometimes I catch myself, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like even though I'm black and I like, I like seeing more products for my hair and I like seeing like these representations and stuff. Like sometimes just as a movement, it gets really overwhelming and just like, I just, I just wanna talk about like dogs or something yeah. it's I do also re recognize that it's like no actually this is this is kind of what needs to happen and yeah. and it's not just with black people like you know seeing more asians in in film or in whatever like seeing you know more like indians or just whoever it is it's just like okay fine fine Let, let's yeah, do this yeah. like on the one hand I, I wish that stuff would just go away you know like mm. um like, I just don't see why it should matter, you know, like, why it should matter that anyone is anything. But, mm -hmm. and I, I understand when people are very critical of, like, the Black, you know, you know Black Pride movement. They're just like, why do you have to be proud of being Black? And it's like, I get what they're saying in a certain sense, but they refuse to see the other side, which is right. That's yeah. reaction to people saying, and this being reflected in society, that Black is inferior. Mm -hmm. Like, right and in actual like consequences like physical yeah. like consequences like it's yeah, not yeah, like exactly. i'm trying to like, like say that, stick that your head goes, in my hair yeah like if that goes away we wouldn't need to have this i mean it's not like you know, this is a, it's right. important to understand these are reactionary movements it's not like oh we're just randomly coming up with like oh we're the best you know we're amazing we're beautiful it's just like this is a reaction right. to um a long legacy of putting this group of people or that group of people as on the bottom. And so yeah. like, oh, why should we care if like this person voices this actor or whatever? And it's like, yeah, ideally it wouldn't matter. Ideally anybody could voice anybody and anybody should be right. on TV. But it's weird that you <laughs> only see it as political when we're putting people of color on TV, but it's not political when it's only white people on TV. That's the right. point. It was like, if you yeah. don't do that stuff, we wouldn't have to do this stuff. That's it. Right. I, mean, I am at heart, I would love a post-racial world. I would love it. I, <laughs> everybody thinking of each other in terms of race categories. I just think it's ridiculously reductionist. I don't think it's helpful. And, and I'm really scared about how we are putting so much substance into it because now people, you know, I'm afraid that people are confusing, like, you know, um, get it, you know, black is beautiful, black pride, confusing this with infusing an essence into race. Like when really this should be a temporary measure, like this is a corrective mm. for a long history of, putting these people on the bottom, which we still see today, but that this is not the final answer. Like this cannot be the final answer. Right. But in the end, yeah. it's gonna have to be, we need to get rid of this idea that there are races. That's it. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean we have to get rid of the idea that there's nations or that there's groups. I'm not against group thinking. I think group thinking is wonderful. It doesn't have to be divisive, but race right. thinking I think is gonna have to go away, which means we'd have to relinquish ourselves also from these pride projects. But again, as long as you have the, the project of maintaining dominance, you're gonna to have to have the project of trying to lift the people up who are on the bottom. Right. So, so those people <clears> who are annoyed <throat> with it and want the world to be post-racial. And I agree with you. You gotta first realize that you need to get rid of the, the dominant kind of narrative first. And so for yeah. me, you know, I see this as a, like a transitional move, not like an end in itself. Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> the next official question is why, uh, philosophical or critical thinking matters to you I mean you kind of already like <laughs> touched on that like to put it very simply it's like well, because I mean, we need the to question I can answer <laughs> why philosophy well okay hold on let me put a star here <laughs> I love that you have the notes there <laughs> I don't I should have notes I'm trying to make notes as I'm talking um 
so so it should be so philosophy and critical thinking are two different things so critical thinking yep. is a skill set and philosophy is a discipline in which you develop the kind of character that exemplifies what critical thinking looks like um, mm. and so um so both are important and i'm going to say critical thinking uh just because you know when you say philosophy it can mean different things to different people which i hate. oh it's so meta you know, yeah, I mean, you know, people argue about yeah. what is philosophy. Um, so, yeah. um, so I prefer, so if we just stick with critical thinking, so critical thinking matters to me and I think it should matter to everyone um, for, I think, like practical reasons and then there's personal reasons. So there's practical mm -hmm. benefits, there's personal benefits. So I think the first practical benefit to critical thinking is that it returns you to a space of um, a simple mode of thought. It's mm. very simple. I think it's the way our minds are supposed to be working, but because of you know how we're raised and what we what customs we have and what prejudices we uh, you know incur, we start to mm. clog up that mechanism and it's not working the way it should. Mm -hmm. So usually we're thinking very dogmatically, and thinking dogmatically is actually really complicated and i think it's really hard on the mind so it's uh, and, and by thinking dogmatically i mean you're clinging to a certain belief system or structure which mm -hmm. you're not willing to divorce yourself from because you know you're very personally invested in it and it might shape your life mm -hmm. this is really stressful for us i think because first of all the first thing you do when you're being dogmatic is you have to block out the other person's voice there mm -hmm. is no way that dogmatism can work otherwise and I think mm -hmm. this is stressful for the mind because we are we have evolved to be very social animals. And I think that we are when we're functioning correctly, we're receptive to information that we're getting from other people. So the first thing when mm -hmm. you're being dogmatic, you're blocking off this very natural conduit of um, of thought. And then second of all, I think that it takes a lot of work to do the mental gymnastics required to rationalize and reinforce a belief system. And so you're spending more time trying to stay consistent to a belief system than actually having a dialogue or engaging with another person mm. perspective. So I think actually this is doing a, a lot of damage and it's creating a lot of stress. And in critical thinking, you learn to remove yourself from this way of thinking. So instead of like starting a conversation here where it's like, I'm here and I'm waiting for you to yeah. stop talking so I can tell you yeah. why I agree. Right. <laughs> Critical thinking is all about, you know, performing an analysis so that you can form a judgment, which means mm -hmm. you can't start with a judgment. You have to judgment. You have to suspend yeah. affirming or assenting to anything, which means you give yourself space to let your mind do what it's supposed to do, which is you yeah. hear the person talking. You don't try to trouble them. Instead, yeah. you want to figure out why do they think this way? What are the inferences that they're using to get somewhere? You yeah. remain very open-minded, right? Because you're like, oh, so in order to understand why they're thinking the way they're thinking, I have to be willing to entertain the premises in the way that they're entertaining. So yeah. I always tell people, if here's the most practical benefit of critical thinking. If you are a person who stresses out all the time, if you have anxiety, if you yeah. uh, have a lot of problems uh, talking to people, you find it not enjoyable, not because you hate people, but because you find that it's really, you know, kind of futile, um, and leads to disagreement and antagonisms and all this kind of stuff. I tell you, start critical thinking. You will <laughs> really start to de-stress. You will mm -hmm. start to be thinking in the way that we think when we're children, which is very open-minded, absorbing mm -hmm. information, willing to entertain lots of different things, having mm -hmm. real dialogues with people. It's a really, um, uh, you know, instead of like, you know, 
I think our first thing is always like start stuffing medications down people's throats when they're anxious. When I think really people are anxious for a rational reason, which is we are not engaging in any real thought. And I think that this yeah. could have a lot of bad effects on us in terms of like our health and in terms of our psyche. Yeah. Another obvious benefit of critical thinking. If I can interrupt. I'm just thinking of like a perfect, a, a good analogy. Cause it's like not thinking critically is like, um, or just not, yeah, not having that skill set is like having a door versus like thinking critically is like having a screen door. Like we've got a filter, like we still can like let the stuff in, but at least we have this filter for that stuff coming in instead of the stuff like waiting outside the door, like banging on the door and then we open it and we're just like completely overwhelmed. Like the snow that's falling in on you, like in a very cartoonish way. And it's like, yeah, that is really stressful. Like, I don't know what the fuck is on the outside, on the other side of my door, instead of like, oh, I see that stuff. And like, oh, I don't have to let it in. Or this is like stopping at least some of it or, you know, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, There's nothing to fear. All that's there is information. Yeah. Yeah. you, do, you can even tell from the body language how stressful it is when people yeah. start dialoguing, especially with someone who thinks differently from them. Uh-huh. They even have this kind of stance. Very guarded, crossing yeah. arms, like not averting eyes or getting the furled brow. Yeah. Or you just, think about what's mm-hmm. going on. It's like, yeah. So this is a pretense, really. It's not a conversation. This is a pretense. Mm-hmm. Like, what's going on? It's just an exchange of information is supposed to be happening. That's it. Yeah. You can choose to, you know, allow this to enter into how you form a judgment or not but this should not be a scary or negative process this is supposed mm-hmm. to be fun. that's the thing that's like thinking about things is supposed to be fun like dialoguing is, is supposed to be fun precisely because of it. <laughs> it gets you back into that mode where like oh i don't have to stress about stuff just because i don't agree with it or maybe you yeah. would agree with it if you listened you know like or yeah. maybe if you don't agree with it you can see the virtue of why someone thinks that way. So, you know, we call this mm-hmm. pluralism, accepting that there are different pictures of life that one could lead. And it's really yeah. cool to understand why someone would go that direction, even if you don't, that that's okay. We don't have mm-hmm. to be stabbing each other on the street because, you know, of someone who, who this person voted for. Like, this is not a way, right. this is not a way that people should be engaging. But the second practical benefit, I'm really trying to just do a sell here, critical thinking. <laughs> Number one, you might lower your anxiety. Okay. Yeah. Number two, well, very obviously, you make better decisions. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, and sometimes, you know, so so that's a good thing, right? You don't want to make bad decisions. You want your life to be better, not worse. And so yeah. sometimes you actually might make a decision and it wasn't the best. But even then, you can tell yourself, given the information I had and the amount of mm-hmm. time I had, mm-hmm. I deliberated as best as I could. And anybody mm-hmm. might would have probably come up with that and so this helps alleviate this burden of beating yourself up over things that you've decided in the past there's Mm -hmm. a whole movement called stoicism which is dedicated to minimizing suffering because of regrets this is because they understood many people create so much suffering for themselves because they cannot get over a decision they made in the past Mm. that they wish they could have done something otherwise and so when you slow down and think critically, even if you didn't make the best decision that could have been made, you don't beat yourself up because you're like, I only had so much time. I only had so much information and there's no reason to beat myself up because if I had the same amount of time, the same information, I would have made the same decision anyway. So it was the best mm-hmm. decision at the time. Mm-hmm. Third of there all, it is. Benefit is that you can actually make and have friends. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like you don't only be have to be friends with people who think exactly like you about everything. A snap. You're talking <laughs> foolishness. So <laughs> you think critically again, you know, because you know, exchanging information becomes fun and you 
um, you know, are willing to entertain different options, you can then kind of talk to a lot more people and you have a lot more fun doing so. And like I said, I'm a paralegal. We have had people getting divorces because they don't agree on stuff that actually has no relevance to their day-to-day lives, you know, just because they can't agree on these abstract kind of things. Mm. People talk about it as an issue with politics, and I don't think that's true. I think political discussions just make salient how big the problem is with critical thinking, that if people were Mm -hmm. able to say that, we would be okay thinking, you know, very differently, and we'd probably be able to talk to each other, and it wouldn't be such a big deal. And then there's, of course, the, the, I think the personal benefits, which is, I think, the subjective character um, of thinking well. There's a subjective value. It's almost like when you go to the gym or you go running or you do some calisthenics or you eat really well for a long time. And even though it was kind of hard to get there, you feel so good. It's almost Mm -hmm. like it's kind of high. It's a thrill of your Mm -hmm. body working well. There's Mm -hmm. something similar that happens to your mind when you use your mind well. In contemporary society, we don't talk about this, but in the ancient world and early modern world, they did, and they actually had a name for it. They called it intellectual passion. And this Mm. was this kind of pleasure response that comes from logical expansion, that there's something genuinely intrinsically enjoyable about pressing your mind. And I don't mean fantasizing or imagining things. I mean literally working your mind logically. There's something that Mm -hmm. actually can feel good. And some philosophers even argue, and I agree, that this pleasure can completely um, transcend any pleasure you feel physically. And Mm -hmm. when I was a young child, that was when I knew I was never going to have a normal life because Mm -hmm. I enjoyed so much this activity of thinking and forcing myself to try to think well, try to think well, that Mm -hmm. I can't imagine anything surpassing the amount of pleasure I get from this. And in fact, of all the drugs and sex and weird things I've done, nothing has (laughs) pleasure. So there's definitely this personal advantage, you know, and mm-hmm. I, I like to, I used to tell my students is a kind of mental adventurousness, like this ability to have a mental adventure. And in the same way that we sometimes look down on people or kind of judge people when they're scared of leaving their house and trying something new, mm-hmm. I think things, we should do that. I think with people who are not mentally adventurous that we should, you know, like, come on, yeah. it's, it's cool to kind of jump from the plane of your own mind and try to land somewhere else where you don't have a map yeah. to land and just see what happens. It's really fun. Yeah. On that, I, two kind of sides to it, the way that I see it is like one, you know, this, this is very similar to how we speak of meditation and, and whether it's like, you know, physical yoga or, you know, these traditions um, where you attain these mental states that are, you know, you're, you're working your mind. I mean, meditation is not easy. It's like, you're not doing anything. And that's sometimes the hardest thing to do. So it's like, yes, we are trying to focus. We're just trying to think about focus on our breathing or focus on one spot, like visually, or whether it's a mantra, like some sensory thing is that's where our focus is. But that ends up allowing us to attain this different mental state, you know, a higher mental state. And so there's that that is, you know, saying the exact same thing. It's like, once you get in touch with that, like mental feeling of peace and like quiet and calm, it's just like, you know, nothing else is really going to touch that. But then, and so I'm really comfortable with that. Like, that's the direction that I want to go. You know, I, I, I is as smart as I'm, <laughs> you folks that I'm surrounded with, it's like, I want to get out of the books and do more of like that kind of stuff. But on another hand, you know, how did you just say it? Like doing, you know, these mental acrobats and jumping out of the the plane of your own mind. Um, You know, for me, it's like when I hang out with my friends, especially my best friend who has a bunch of kids, like 
it is outside of my comfort zone to be in this other kind of um, happy mental state where we're making up things, we're playing. And, you know, there's a lot to be said with like psychology and child psychology as far as like the benefits of play, like as children and then as adults. And that's something that we lose touch with and all of those good things. But, um, but I definitely noticed that, that it's like, it's still kind of a harmless state of mind. And it's really, it's really healthy for us to go into these, like to do these mental acrobats. Like, okay, I'm going to pretend, I'm going to start calling these children by names that aren't theirs or things they made up. And we're going to like see things that aren't there. Like, that's just, <laughs> you know, it's a similar kind of thing. Um, and, and it's really like still strange to like, <laughs> like be in this moment with myself. I'm just like, what is wrong with you? Like, why don't you want to do this? Like, what? <laughs> just play the damn game, you know, but it's that same feeling that other people have where it's like, they don't want to think critically or they don't want to meditate. Like, yeah, you know, so it's like, who wants to go jogging? You know, I mean, it's like, yeah. no <laughs> couch and the thing is, everyone knows the effects. They do feel, yeah. a lot of people feel good when they do, and if jogging is not your thing, then whatever, some other kind of exercise. I mean, it's just because that's, our bodies, you know, are supposed to be doing those things. You're supposed right. to be moving your body. And so your body is going to feel best when it's doing what it's supposed to do. Um, now, because of custom and because of like lifestyle, again, these things kind of, hunker you down and so now we're living in ways that are just not the way that our bodies are supposed to be working like we're not supposed to be sitting for 12 hours a day in front of right. a screen with you know blue lights staring at us or whatever that's not right. like you know it's not a coincidence that it affects your mood and you're just like and blah, blah blah and then it starts right. a vicious cycle where you have no motivation blah, blah, blah. and so getting out of that custom is really where the hard work is it's not the actual mm -hmm. once you get into the habit of exercising it's almost like you can't stop like you, you right know, you do it easily and you and the, the joy and the the good feeling of the of your body afterwards you know mm -hmm. kind of keeps you going it's just kind of getting into the habit right. and i think that there's a mental equivalent so when i think of critical thinking you know which is again like you're doing these logical exercises to just push you know logically expand your mind it's the same thing because of custom you know we don't encourage critical thinking we don't most of our lives most of our lives we're not thinking deeply about anything and sometimes we even discourage it nowadays right. you look everybody snapping when somebody's like oh, i'm gonna tell you off and it feels good you know we have this like you know you're telling someone off and this group you know you're using these insults blah 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 no one's doing like this because someone's logical though you know like, right <laughs> there's no reward for it so we are um we have all of this, uh, these these ways of living that don't encourage critical thinking. So it's no surprise then now when you say, okay, let's do some let's do some logic that you know people aren't going to be like, oh, that's fun. It's hard. It's like getting up. Off the <laughs> and say, okay, now you got to run six miles, you know. But again, there's that benefit of it's just like when your body's doing what it's supposed to do, you feel better, you're healthier, your mood is great. There's that yeah. mental, you know, equivalent where when you're using your mind the way it's supposed to be used, which is logically, mm -hmm. your mind is working well when it's working logically, not mm -hmm. exhaustively logically. That's not everything. Right. Yeah, we don't have to do truth tables, folks. Like yeah, it's just exactly. <laughs> being rational. You know, you're doing an analysis. You're thinking slowly. You're paying attention. You're focusing. You're looking at different options. You're staying open-minded. You're doing a self-evaluation. You're considering another side. You're, mm -hmm. you know, when you're doing stuff like that and you're using your mind the way that it's supposed to be used, it feels good. And I definitely don't see it as anything but your mind returning back to this very simple, basic state. Work, just your mm -hmm. mind, you're letting your mind do what it's supposed to do. And you got to just get all that junk off of the, the you know, it's almost yeah. like, 
I think it was Descartes who talks about like your mind automatically wants to point at whatever is true when it comes to logical matters or good mm-hmm. when it comes to practical matters. But because mm-hmm. of custom and prejudice, it hunkers down on your meter. And so you can't tell which one. <laughs> So the work of uh, education, so this is a Socratic definition of education, is education is not adding facts to your mind. It's getting this junk off of your mm. your truth meter, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's so the WD-40 of <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, that's why and they have a different conception from the empiricists. But that's what they were arguing. They said our mind works well. We just have a bunch of junk in it that's not allowing it to work well. We just got to remove it somehow. And so that's mm-hmm. why I don't see it as like it's this thing that is, it's this hard thing in that sense. It's hard in the sense that you have to do the work of how do I get my mind to be simple again? Yeah. Yeah. Um, There was something you had said you were saying earlier. I think it was like bullet point number three about, you know, doing the best. Um, And you definitely qualified. And it's something that people, I assume, have a hard time hearing or understanding is that like there's the best that could be done in a situation. And that's just kind of like in a perfect world. And then there's the best that we could do in a situation. And that's really important to, to keep in mind, you know, even if we, even, um, who is it, Miguel Ruiz, um, he says it in the four agreements. It's like that, I think that's the last one, like always do your best. And it's just, you know, give, I like how you broke it down. It's like given the time, the amount of preparation I was able to do, given the circumstances, like what the information that I knew in the situation, this was the best that I could do. And if we just kind of hold that in mind, then we're not, holding ourselves back as much, or hopefully, you know, we can still feel some guilt or whatever that human stuff is about, well, I wish I would have done something else, but we are closer to accepting this is what I did. And this is why I did it. And there weren't really other options at the time. So yeah, the Stoics, um, so Descartes, his ethics, he draws the Stoics. And so he actually says the number one virtue you could have is the resolution to use your mind well. Mm. And his, he was kind of making the same point, of course, because he was influenced by this kind of Platonic Socratic tradition of if you make this resolution, it makes no sense to feel bad about any decision you've ever made. It just makes no sense, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know that you did whatever you could to come up with something, you know, to, to decide. Because when it comes to when it comes to logical matters, you can spend all day, you know, trying to find what the best is. When it comes to yeah. practical matters, life doesn't work that way. You have a finite amount of time. You have to make a decision, right? People yeah. who are constantly stuck in, in this, you know, contemplation mode, you're you're crippled into inaction. You got to make a decision at some point. And yeah. so, if you actually every single time make the effort to do as fair deliberation as possible, it really makes no sense to feel bad about anything that you've ever decided. And that was yeah. why he was arguing, he was actually made a whole entire ethical account out of this, that this is a virtue, that you just, just resolve to use your mind as well as you can. That's it. <laughs> uh, it makes me think of, what is that phrase? Or uh, how parents will tell kids like, if you don't lie, then you don't have to, no, if you tell the truth and you don't have to remember a lie kind of thing. <laughs> it's like, you know, if we just set ourselves up to just kind of do these things and we don't have the stress of doing the other stuff. Um, sorry, I got dog hair stuck to my lip suddenly. <laughs> they both came back inside. Um, okay, so before we talk about, what I wrote down was adult EDs because I'm tired of writing out existential dilemmas but uh, before that I uh I haven't 
spoken to any of my female friends, particularly female academic friends, about the Dr. Biden bullshittery. Um, one of my friends, she did post on Facebook because she's Dr. Hill now. Um, she did post kind of uh, repost this this article where somebody pretty much like they said all the things very succinctly but I just wanted to bring this up with you because we hadn't talked about it and it just is blowing my fucking mind like do you do you know did so you see that this editorial one said she shouldn't be referred to as doctor yeah okay yeah, yeah. I mean well that's not the first time I've heard of that so a lot of people oh yeah no <laughs> you know, a lot of people outside of academia don't realize that when someone gets their PhD uh, a doctorate their formal title is doctor and so mm -hmm. one easy way that people try to undermine someone who's not a medical doctor is to say um it's misleading to refer to yourself as doctor whatever yeah and, you know but I think <laughs> yeah the and worst part of like what the guy said was something to the effect of like well somebody told me that you can only be called doctor unless if you if you deliver a child and like in this moment I about dropped my phone I'm just like but she's a mother <laughs> like so now we have to deal with the feminism of this and like just like, there's just so many things going on at this point that are just I mean, so one fucked thing up that came out of that is that now people understand that the title doctor actually has a pretty wide application I mean oh is, my gosh for instance, when I was in school we didn't call our professor doctor something we call them professor and then their name like yeah you know, i did hear some people say doctor this or that but it was usually right. some professor um and so I, I think just regular people might not know that i guess <laughs> which is like point three is that the person writing is like he has a bachelor's and it's just like didn't you learn this somewhere along the lines of this is just a learn it stupid one, you know <laughs> No, that was like, I have a friend, well, all my friends have doctorates, but I mean, like, <laughs> airport and, mm -hmm. you know, and they were on the phone and I don't know, like, if someone said doctor this and it's like, yeah, I'm doctor that or whatever. And the person's like, oh, are you a doctor? And they're like, well, I have a doctorate. And they're like, why would you call yourself a doctor then? And, he said, and that's like, I think a typical confusion that doctor. Oh, MD oh goodness. Uh -huh. Instead of PhD. I don't think, I don't think most people know know that now of course when you do find out about that and then if you're trying to undermine the person then you pretend you don't know or something which i think is yeah you know that also i think okay. you know like i said I, I don't think people are thinking that deeply when they're attacking each other they're so clouded by a certain judgment or ideology that they can't even like this oh this is a perfect example of how, of how your research can be um stunted by prejudice so for instance if you're going let's say you're writing this article you're like i'm going to take down dr biden or you know let's say that's your agenda for whatever reason like you're getting paid because you know you're a blogger for the other side or something and so because you're so wrapped up in this drama about the political differences you mm -hmm. don't even think to research what mm -hmm. why is or under what circumstances someone can refer to themselves as a doctor for instance that would mm -hmm. be like you know that would probably be a good place, place to start at least you mm -hmm. know what kind of doctor is she and then look up and then realize oh doctor oh doctorate people call themselves doctor okay got it that whole mm -hmm. thing would have been you know it would, mm -hmm. would have been dead basically but it's like that's a good example of how even just the paths of research you take are going to be dictated by whatever prejudices you have like it's like if you mm -hmm. didn't have prejudice if you had just thought to look up what did she get her degree in what is that degree how do people refer to people who have that degree in three steps on google you would have been done <laughs> 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 you know? yeah yeah but i mean in that person's defense 
And given yeah. the, the defense that nobody does good research, especially for news outlets, um, yeah. yeah, I've heard that mistake many, many times. I guess, I, I guess, I you have given them much more credit <laughs> than I am, than I have, and that is good. Um, I'm, I'm fine with accepting that. There was still some other bullshittery that fell out of his mind and onto the the virtual page i mean i don't think anybody but, should be in any news agency as a paragon of you know great thinking good article writing good journalism everybody knows this is all yeah. sensational yeah. on all sides this is all sensational stuff because that's the yeah. stuff everybody is all ramped up everybody's all tense and ready to attack each other so they're all they yeah. have to, and I think even if they knew that, so here's my other theory. My other theory is that maybe they knew that. Mm -hmm. They don't care because people just want to read dirt about the other side. I think 50% mm. of news is just made up stuff nowadays. Like, <laughs> I mean, genuinely, anybody is swilling whatever crap they can to get those clicks. I know people oh who gosh. write for blogs and that pressure of you want to villainize X person, you know, this person X, and whatever slop you can throw into the article, you do it because people are not doing research either. They'll read an article, mm. they'll be like, ha, mm. ha, 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 and then, you know, then they'll repost it. So nobody's doing research. There's all this pressure to get clicks and to be, you know, have more clicks than the next one. And there's even, you know, they have these competitions where you're the boss will see how many seconds another news agency posted the story before you did and hold you to, to task at a meeting about this. There is extreme oh pressure to push out stuff. And there's not that much exciting stuff going on. If you really think mm. about it, you know, so it's like, you have all the, all like the biggest crap thinking possible in a crap arena, you mm. know, crap people waiting to read it and judge each other. I mean, so I, I don't think anybody should be reading news articles and surprised that, you know, uh, these kinds of things, whether it was a mistake or geniusly done on purpose, because on the other side, they don't care about her credentials, right? They just know she's the wife of the guy we didn't want. And we will believe anything you tell us. And we will find mm. any way to rationalize and make loopholes around anything. Um, you know, because, because for instance, you can see on the other side, for instance, let's say someone who read this article and they, they don't like Biden, you know, because that's not who they voted for. You can see them actually getting to do the rationalization work that a dogmatic person would do, which is, yeah, maybe it's not custom, or maybe it is customary for anyone with a doctor to be called doctor, but maybe we should change that because it's confusing. Like they'll rationalize it for themselves. They'll be like, yeah, that is confusing. Why would you refer to yourself as a doctor if you're not, like, or you don't mm -hmm. have an MD? How am I supposed to know? Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. They'll rationalize it for themselves. And just like on the other side, you can bring up some crap about, you know, um, um, uh, Trump that's not exactly true. And the other side, they'll find some way to be like, yeah, but he is crap, you know, that could, this mm. guy, whatever, you know, it's mm. Every side is doing the same thing. So I think, you know, mm. I don't think anybody should be surprised by the low quality of writing and thinking going on in mm. pretty much, I mean, it's been a long time since I read a news article and I was like, oh, that was informative. And that was <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I catch, I keep up with the news so I can see what, you know. Right. Sort of see if the world is falling apart out there. Alternate reality push this day. But I mean, other yeah, than that, yeah. I'm not going to be expecting. Yeah. I think, I think what, what like, weirds me out so much one is that like I, it's something that I certainly thought was common knowledge and um again fine I'll give that that it's not fine um but then also like any time that I'm trying to think of uh kind of the 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 rational framework the logical framework the mental framework of of 
folks who are trying to, you know, attack somebody who isn't provoking an attack. Um, you know, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to write this opinion piece because I think this highly educated woman doesn't deserve respect based on her education that I'm going to tell you about. <laughs> and there wasn't, <laughs> like, it just, it's, it's a kind of like rational world or just this, this mental world that it's just like, I like does not come cute. Like, I just don't, I just have such a hard time wrapping my brain around just like, wait, but why and how did we get to these conclusions? But not like, not in the sense of like, I, I need to know how you got to these conclusions. Just like, what were you smoking this morning that made you believe that this was gonna, I don't know, like get you a cookie or I, I, I just but, don't know. But they so. probably did get cookies from their side. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Again, nobody is doing this because it's like a, a true, you know, fidelity to facts or fidelity to yeah. there. I mean, yeah. like, like I said, when I see my friends who do blog writing, I don't know why they do it. Except mm. for the ones who are doing it just for fun. I don't know why mm -hmm. they do it. There is this pressure to cook out stuff that's going to stay within the, the line of the, your target audience. Whereas I think good writing and good thinking and good journalism, you don't worry about a target audience. You want to make a new audience. But mm -hmm. I think that what's going on now is just you're just peddling crap to your people and nobody cares if it's right or wrong or if it makes sense the same thing was so for instance i think that spouses should just be off limits when it comes to these things like i don't mm. the same thing was happening on the the left side when how many thought pieces have now been written about melania trump and how mm. she must either be a, a, a abused person who's can't get out of trump's you know shadow or how she's terrible because she's not speaking up and it's like she is not the fucking president why are we writing right about this woman who we did not vote into office this is his wife mm -hmm. why are we writing pieces about this woman and this and that's the, again if you ask why are we right what does this have to do with anything what does this have to do mm. with anything economically or what's going on with coronavirus what, what his wife is doing or not doing she's playing a symbolic role that every first lady has to play and what right. she really thinks we don't really know and her relationship with her husband we don't really know and we right. you know, whatever but the, the left was slopping their own crap when it came to trump's wife you know both sides are doing the same thing and it's not because of any integrity or because we're really trying to you know come hunker down and discover some facts and think about things it's like because they're mm -hmm. just trying to get the clicks and they're just you know pushing whatever crap they can get so that everybody can stay in that dogmatic frame of mind like look mm. what this person is doing look what this person is saying look blah 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 and in reality it's like none of this is actually important like there mm -hmm. are people who are unemployed and they don't have houses like that's what's important like who cares mm -hmm. <clears throat> um so very briefly i wanted to just just say it explicitly that um another reason that i wanted to bring that up is because you're one of the smartest women I know. And, um, you know, even though I don't nearly have like the experience under my belt with, as you do in academia, like I still have, I, I imagine that your experiences you have, and we've talked about, okay, you, we've talked about a lot of like casual bullshit, but, you know, in, in formal settings, um, in formal settings, um, you've definitely, I've definitely encountered people who frankly just didn't think that we were smart. And it's like, oh, well, there's, you know, just very dismissive. Um, and it seems, and I have other friends um, who <laughs> experience kind of similar things. And so it's just like, just bring it up to say that like, it's, it's I guess it's kind of a shame that these things are, are still things to be dealt with, that there's um, 
God, people are so afraid of like the word feminist. So it's like, I, I don't like to use that because it's just like, I'm going to shut off my hearing as soon as I hear that F word. But it's the not seeing kind of personhood, not seeing background, not seeing, and, and background as far as like experiences and, you know, content of people um, because, I don't know, because we're, we're stuck in these dogmatic ways that are just stupid. Yeah. But... <laughs> I think a lot of women, unfortunately, I mean, so I remember there was a woman in my, my PhD program, this woman was brilliant. The only person I thought who was more brilliant was, well, you know who my, my very <laughs> obsessed with, um, but there was this other woman, this woman, she was extremely amazing at logic and philosophy of science, and that was the stuff that she was researching and she was teaching she looked beautiful too she looked exactly like a barbie doll and she you know she like disney and beyonce you know very very girly girl kind of person and you know i remember just you know like you know in the first class or the second class there was this certain kind of behavior towards her like that you know not mm. taking her seriously i remember the first two classes i this didn't happen very often but there was uh, the first two classes that i had of two separate kinds of classes that there were um, like there was this like libertarian bro, you know, self-described, um, you know, who, who literally came up to me after the class and he's like, "Who made this syllabus? This doesn't even make sense, or whatever." You know, I was like, "I made this syllabus, <laughs> like, like really?" Or you know, or he would come to my office. He came to my office hours the first week and he gave his own lecture of his interpretation of what was talked about in class. And I'm just like, "Well, you should get, try to get a PhD. That I don't care if you, 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 you do this, whatever." Um, one of the nice things about philosophy, and this is something that I felt in the master's program, especially, you know, for, or the first time I really felt it, was that with philosophy, I felt like even though those kinds of things would happen in when we were first interacting with people, that they would eventually subside. That's something I mm -hmm. love about philosophy, and I, that's why mm -hmm. I'm very much at home, because anywhere else, there it seemed like once someone made a certain impression of you, it just pretty much stuck. And of course, mm. you know, a lot of people think that if you see a woman, you know, and they're not even, it's not, not even on a conscious level. That's what we call implicit bias, right? I mean, like, it's not even on a conscious level, but it's like you, well, like, oh, she's hot. Or like, you know, uh, she's probably not as smart as that guy. Or, you know, or mm -hmm. even if I, you know she's like the same thing as the guy. You listen to the guy, whatever. Those things happen. And philosophy, mm -hmm. I really like how, or at least my experience, and this was my experience in the master's program and the PhD program, it seemed like in the beginning, there would be those kinds of, you know, those sort of cultural stigmas i guess you you know you can't help but you're people raised to think a stupid way and they think that way but then as we were doing philosophy and really getting into it that these things started to kind of dissolve and then where mm. we had any antagonism interpretation of the or something like you know I remember that i got one time in, in san francisco where like you know the police would be called because people were arguing about which interpretation they you know it was just like oh, you know it's not because the, you know there was like all different you know different races and ethnicities involved or whatever yeah. but that was that was really where the real issue you know happened um so i think like well you know one reason i like being in philosophy was because i it, it was more about being you know doing the philosophy and it's like you have to go into such deep recesses of your mind that it's almost mm -hmm. like you have to kind of push aside all the other stuff and like only mm -hmm. you, know, you have to focus so hard on the argument and what inferences are being laid out that it's just like after a while you just stop even paying attention to or it's almost like you're not even working implicit bias mode anymore because you're not even doing anything remotely in the world anymore you're just at this abstract level um mm -hmm. so yeah so I, I had those experiences but i had more experiences where um i felt really validated like it, mm -hmm. you know like it seemed like if you were doing your shit and you were doing it well that 
people responded to it. So, I mean, I didn't have mm-hmm. many people think that I was incompetent. I think people could tell, like, like you know, when it comes to stuff I don't know about, I'm honest, you know, I, I don't have a wide range of expertise. Uh, and I would always say if I don't know something, but if I know something, and if you're talking about my specialty, then I will I will talk over you more than any guy will talk over you. I mean, that's how <laughs> Yeah, you know, no one ever questioned what you know whether I knew something or not. And that was the yeah. same thing the other woman talking about. And this is the woman who was the greatest person probably ever in contemporary philosophy is a you know a woman, and nobody yeah. cares that she's a woman. They know when she walks into the room and you're giving a talk, you're fucked because she's gonna <laughs> the loophole. Um, and so <laughs> that can happen in philosophy, which is a very traditionally you know male white but like the upper class white kind of discipline mm-hmm. if those changes are possible in philosophy i just i yeah. think it's possible anywhere but i i do think again that the kind of thinking involved in philosophy kind of helped move that along a lot faster mm. than other areas so yeah yeah um yeah, so- final question say it again yeah so i experienced both you know like a, a few of those times where it was like oh what do you know you know and then just kind of yeah a few weeks later where they're just like, okay, I know nothing. Like, yeah, I've never, <laughs> <yep>. <laughs> um, uh, so the final official question is about um, back to these adult EDs. So existential dilemmas as an adult, um, kind of like, what is your experience with them? What do you have to say about that? <laughs> well, which existential dilemma? <laughs> that always ends up being the answer like there's just existential dilemmas all the time every day every year something new every month is one new like however so so obviously you experience them obviously you have a relationship with dilemmas of the existential variety right. um you talk about like oh should i kill myself or should i live um well i don't know i mean whatever is most um important for you i mean it's it's funny how this has kind of been addressed. Like, you know, with Ken, I really wanted to speak with him about being a parent or, you know, even with my friend Lisa, because, you know, I made it very, very clear. It's like, I don't have children. And so my, my existence hasn't been challenged by the created existence of another human that now relies on me. Like that, that is a mind fuck for me. You know, it's, it's a very enticing mind fuck, but it's still very like, why well, don't know that I could do that. You know, I'm very happy that I'm not a mother um for philosophical purposes like for the sanity of my mind so um but you know there's a whole book about <laughs> that topic actually oh, yeah. the paper about how can you using you know decision theory so the best mode of you know model thinking uh-huh. how is one supposed to rationally assess whether being a parent is a good decision and she makes oh, the gosh. argument that when it comes to transformative experiences where you have no clue what your life is going to be like once it happens because it's so different it seems like you can't use decision theory and her whole book is mm. sense of how you can use decision theory but you would have to change what it is to assess the values of life before a child versus life after a child which you don't know about so i mean i recommend it's called transformative experience by la paul <laughs> yeah. about this issue like you know what do you do like i have no clue what my life is going to really be like you know yeah. i only you know second person testimony and you know yeah. I don't know what I'm gonna because everyone talks about I become a mother or a father and I'm a completely different person and so how are you supposed yeah. to decide before you have the experience whether it's an experience worth going through it's a good <laughs> yeah, <it's interesting>. <laughs> <laughs> like I mean so you haven't always been vegan um I mean you have been for a very long time but um so that is for many people that decision um that 
transition. I don't even know what the right word is for it, but that, that difference, that, that, that lifestyle, um, is, uh, scary. It, it, it promotes, uh, creates a dilemma within them because then they're not sure what their choices are going to be, how they're going to like move about in the world, how they're going to interact with their family members or friends or loved ones who like hold true to, um, you know, eating meat or like barbecuing, whatever, you know, entire like social situations are built around emotional situations, situations are built around like these meat and animals as food experiences. And so if they're going to make this decision and transition for themselves, then that can mean losing like support, losing like, you know, kind of purposes and stuff. So like that is a whole thing that I don't know that we've ever really talked about. I don't know that it's been yeah, a thing yeah, for you. That, yeah. Yeah. For me, it yeah. was <laughs> right. I had no angst in becoming, you know, I was vegetarian for a long time. Well, actually when I was a yeah. young child, I wanted to stop eating meat. And then I had this conversation with my dad. He's like, we're just too poor to to be throwing meat out, like, you know, because I was mm -hmm. putting meat in my shoe and putting it in the toilet whenever mm. I went to the bathroom and my parents found out and it was hell because we were ridiculously poor. And so I made a deal with my sister after I had the conversation with my dad and he did sort of suggest he understands why I was doing it. Mm -hmm. He actually gave me a book of Plutarch and Porphyry and he left a bookmark in the chapter about, you know, why you shouldn't eat animals. So even though he didn't understand it, he wanted to say, listen, I don't get it, but there are some people who think like this and just letting you know, I get it, but mm -hmm. you have to you move out of the house before you make these decisions. And so I made uh -huh. a sister that I would give her my meat and she gives me her potatoes. And so that was <laughs> kind of, you know, circumventing the meat eating thing. If I had to eat it, I had to eat it, but I knew when I went to college, then that's when I could be um, vegetarian. And then I just didn't know what veganism was. Uh, once mm. I heard what veganism was, then I became vegan. There was no angst. There was no choice in the matter. I was just like, I don't want to be the kind of person who's not bothered mm -hmm. with this. And that was it. I don't even, have, when people ask me, why are you vegan? I just, I have no clue. I have no answer mm -hmm. for you. It's a, it's a character thing. That's it. It's obviously, mm -hmm. the, it's obviously the right decision. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a decision in which th there was angst such that I would describe it as an existential dilemma uh, in the last few years. I don't know that you had much angst with like not going on to PhD, not finishing your PhD. <laughs> that seemed kind of obvious at the time. <laughs> yeah, I have pressure. I have a lot of pressure. Uh, for some mm -hmm. reason, people think like, you know, if you had a PhD after your name, then, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm just like, I don't care. Like, I just don't care. Like, you know, there are lots of things where people have a PhD after their name and it's the worst thing I've ever read. So, I mean, I don't care. Um, and so if people won't take me seriously, I don't like, fine. I don't want anyone to take my work seriously without a PhD. I'm doing this. I mean, like I do talk to scholars. I, I definitely believe that you have to peer review your work and you can't be writing out of your ass. You should be talking to people who are scholars in the discipline so that you can get feedback and get pushback. And that's what I do. You know, I'm, I'm doing that kind of work. I, and the thing, if I couldn't do that, maybe I'd go back to school because that's the only environment in which I would find that kind mm. of feedback. But I don't have to. Nowadays, you have the internet. You can just write to a professor. You can Zoom with a professor. You can, I talk to whoever, I, I talk to more people now in different universities than I did when I was in the PhD program, actually. So uh, that's why it's taking me so long to do this work because every time I write anything, I send it to someone who knows a lot about it, you know, or two or three people and they say, nope, there's a whole book that's going against this. And I agree with you, but maybe this, and there's a loophole here or whatever. So yeah, yeah. I don't think though I feel, or there's people trying to put pressure on me and I just say, oh yeah, yeah, I'll think about it. And then I just don't think about it, you know, because <laughs> I've created the, exactly the life yeah. that I want, you know? Yeah. So maybe answer it in a bit of a different way or address it in a different way. Um, what, what thoughts do you have on existential dilemmas in general? Because um, this is something that I, I forget who I was talking with. Um, it was just, I'm under the assumption 
that um, a lot of people are, are in the middle of dilemmas right now and they don't, either they don't realize it or they don't know what the fuck to do. Um, you know, their lives need to change. Their lives are changing. I mean, especially here in 2020, like, you know, not having a job that you kept for however many years, like my next conversation, like he had his job. He worked in the same place since the last time we saw each other 14 years ago. And then, you know, their, their place closed. And so now he's got to do something else. And, you know, that wasn't something that he was consciously preparing for. Um, of course, he's in a better position than most you know he's a yogi so um <laughs> these are kind of content being contemplative is just what he does but um you know there's other people who they don't fucking know how they're moving forward and and don't know how to address not knowing how to move forward so like what what words of wisdom <laughs> or what words do you have no the only worst person to ask for advice about that <laughs> You know, I've been, I've been in those situations where it's like, well, I don't have, I just moved. I have got no place to live. I have no job. I have no money. And, you know, I don't think I'm a good person to ask because I, you know, I live in a way where I live on very little, like, you know, from, I, I'm obsessed with like this old ancient way of life where, you know, people would be homeless and they were living their best lives, you know, because they mm. just, they just wanted freedom. That's what they wanted. They would like, so everyone else would look at them and they're like, you're this peasant. How can you be happy? And they were just like, ah, I get to have some more conversations with my friend tonight about the nature of the good, you know, <laughs> like, you know, so um, I, I think one of my favorite quotes ever, it's from the historian Diogenes, not the philosopher, uh, but he did a, he wrote this really famous history of philosophers and he, he attributes his one quote to Socrates and it's something like, oh, how I long for so little, you know, something like that. Like just this kind yeah. of attitude, which I really admire, like getting rid of this need that you need to have a lot of stuff or you have to have stuff going on or whatever. Um, so, I'm, so yeah, so I'm not a good person to ask because I have been in situations, as you know, before, when I first came to Maine, you know, I, I was living in a cemetery because <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have a place to stay. And um, I just kind of saw it as like, well, let's see what's going to happen next. <laughs> <You know? laughs> you know, and then when it started getting colder, then it's like, well, I then I went to the shelter and then that wasn't a great place, you know. And actually there was this confusion, like, why are you here? You're this hyper-educated person. Like, even just the way they were treating me, they're like, you don't have a place to stay. And I'm like, no, I just have this bag and my books. So like, you said it's a homeless shelter. I'm homeless, you know. Yeah. So I stayed for one night and then I felt bad because there was this, this sense of just like, uh, you're not... Um, impoverished enough to be here you know even though mm. I didn't have anything and then I just I literally found a, pl a free place to stay by sitting at a bar and just I kind of was talking to some people and they're just like do you need a job and I was like <laughs> yeah I'll try being a waitress I was terrible and one of the guys his wife had just left him and he's like I have an extra room <laughs> and so I mean this could have easily turned into a forensic files episode but I don't know I just saw it as <laughs> <laughs> I just, I just got this sense that these people yeah. were very good, you know, like there were some other people talking to me and I got this sense that they weren't very good, you know, but, <laughs> um, which that might be another benefit of critical thinking that I think you do get to, you know, you can suss out characters, you know, yeah. you know on, on those, on the spot. Um, but yeah, so I, for me, I, I have always been an optimist about anything existential. So there's some people who have like a very negative take on existential stuff, you know, um, and in fact, so much so that Sartre had to write that really terrible lecture, existentialism, the humanism. I mean, he was embarrassed by it. Everybody into existentialism embarrassed by it. But the whole point was because, you know, when he first was presenting this view, and not to mention, I mean, so he's very influenced by uh, Nietzsche, later Nietzsche, because early Nietzsche was sad and pessimistic because he was really influenced by Schopenhauer, but then he found his, his voice and he's like, wait a minute, 
optimism is the way to go. And so he's like, fuck you, Schopenhauer. And they started doing his own thing, which is where you get these magnificent later works. And so someone like Sartre was, he was you know, a smart guy and he could tell the, the beauty and optimism of what Nietzsche was talking about. Um, and everybody was like, oh man, we have no external structure telling us how to lead our lives. Oh, and they were scared, you know? And, and Sartre was like, Wait, hold, hold on, existential is not supposed to be this sad thing. I'm letting you yeah. know man you're free you're yeah free. like that's yeah. a good thing there's like you have radical freedom and you know on one side of the coin it's scary but on the other side it's like you can create whatever life you want to live now i don't think he means like literally like you could be a millionaire that's right too superficially but meaning you know if you value a certain kind of life and it's a, a robust substantial kind of evaluation you can live that life and who cares right. what job you have or where you are or where your friends are or where anybody is that you can you can create the kind of life that you want for yourself and so i uh, um i agree with you know I, I hate the essay as much as anyone else does but i agree that there's this beauty to exist to you know existentialism and thinking about things existentially um that I would prefer to have that than to have this sure answer or some objective reality that's going to give us a framework for how we're supposed to think about things and how nice it would be if we did see it as like, okay, I've lost a certain way of life because of circumstances. Mm -hmm. What now is ahead of me? Mm -hmm. You know, that you yeah. can, this can be a good thing that maybe you would have never tried some new thing, or maybe you would have never met some new person. Or maybe you would have never thought more deeply about life or about what you want if you hadn't been in this circumstance. So trying to look at it as like, you don't, you do not lose the ability to shape your life just because circumstances have changed drastically. You remain radically free and it's up to you how you want to um, interpret the radical freedom. You can see it in this negative sense, like, oh, I've lost everything. I, things can't go back to the way they were. Or you can look at it as I'm still free, whether or not I like it, I'm still free. And what can I do with this now? What's going to be my next yeah. What kind of adventure can I next have? Of course, I'm not pretending, you know, for instance, people who are in really dire circumstances, nobody, not even Sartre is talking about these people, because of course there are certain conditions in society. And actually one of the motivations for him to, to work on an existential structure was to say, because we're radically free, we also have a radical responsibility to one another. We don't yeah. have a God out there who, or yeah. any sort of deity or some sort of structure out there that's going to help people falling through the cracks who don't deserve it. So, which mm -hmm. means it's on us human beings to support each other and to support, of course, other kinds of beings on the planet. And so I think if people saw existentialism in this positive way, that we would also have a more positive uh, uh, interpretation of social social structure, yeah. getting social net and stuff like that, you know, that we would say that this is, yeah. people shouldn't be falling through the cracks because it's our responsibility because there's no one else, there's no one else there for them. You know, we don't think that there is an after these people are going to be salvaged or things like that. Like this is, it's like what Nietzsche said, this is all you've got. Existence is really heavy. This is it. Yeah, this is you it. Know? Like, this is it. So, so when I, so whenever people are talking about like, oh, I'm in this, this, this crossroads and I don't know what I'm going to do. It's just like, that can be a really good thing if you look right. at it like you know if you're healthy and you know life is actually pretty long and you can have a big career change or you can have a mm -hmm. relationship change or you can move somewhere new or and a lot of people are doing that and mm -hmm. living more simply or having more time to you know really assess like what's important to me like how do I want to live and maybe we would have never asked ourselves these questions if we didn't have this this opportunity yeah yeah it's actually something that um we were talking about last night to a degree because um so my brother's birthday was yesterday and he's um, going to be retiring in the next 
next year and a half um, after doing 20 years in the Navy. And so, you know, he's saying that he doesn't know what he's going to do. He still hasn't decided he doesn't know what he's going to do when he grows up, um, you know, once he retires. And, you know, I'm of the, the thinking that's like, this sounds very exciting, like to have had, you know, this steady work um, for all this time. And then now, like he, he almost literally gets to do anything that he wants. And that, that can be nothing. And that can be a whole lot of really, fabulous fantastic thing it's like that that's like it's it seems really big and daunting but also like incredibly exciting just like like, you know but you know you know um the hubby was saying that like you know it's uh the military does things to the mind in order to maintain you know keep up those positions um and and not in this like evil kind of way but you know that's that's really just condensing what what he was saying into a nutshell and and that needs to be taken into account that it 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 takes a lot of kind of all the mental energy that we use for philosophizing can't happen (laughs) can't can't be there like if you're in a serious position a serious career like being in the military um and and that completely makes sense so it's like if i have to shut off that if he has to shut off that switch and then suddenly like not only turn on another one but find it in the dark like (laughs) it might not be as exciting as as i or or you might find it but um you know i'll still be there people in the military who are you know philosophically inclined and they yeah 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 it's just you know i mean mean, your brother might want to get into critical thinking i mean there's another This comes full circle to what we're talking about because one of the it's possible it is critical thinking that you have to foster is open-mindedness and a lot of times people think about open-mindedness only with respect to how you're engaging with other material or someone else but open-mindedness is also important for yourself that you have to Mm -hmm. be open-minded about your own life and about the options you have in your own life and so Mm -hmm. learning to be open-minded is going to be useful and it's you know interacting with other people and trying to be open-minded good practice for what is the ultimate goal which is learning how to be open to yourself that you you can come up with different avenues of thought nobody nobody's minds are completely foreclosed such that they can't come up with new avenues of thought and that open-mindedness is something that you can turn toward yourself which is why I don't think it's ever too late for anybody to get into critical thinking because this you have immediate benefits that you will now start to see your own life in different ways and ways that you would not have seen before if you had to train your mind to look for more conceptual space to be more evaluative about what options exist or different ways to look at a situation whereas before you might have only seen oh it can be this way or that way and then when you 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 know uh, train your mind to work differently that now it's like oh now seven different options open up or eight different options open up. And so yeah. in critical thinking, I mean, it gives you, I mean, again, it's, it gives you this kind of personal benefit because you can apply it to your own life. Yeah. And that's definitely something that I saw that we saw with our dad, who, when he retired from the Navy, um, you know, he was teaching, he's been teaching, well, he retired for a second time this year, but um, he went in to teach, you know, JROTC in high schools. And I, I couldn't tell if it was him getting out of the Navy officially or being around more, more minds, more young minds on a regular basis, like which thing kind of shifted his, his perceiving more. Um, but he definitely became more open to other stuff, um, more receptive and, um, yeah, I mean, I think it just, it, it really took being out of that day-to-day 
uh, framework for that to even like be be possible. Um, so you know, again, you know, as 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 my brother's sister, I'm very optimistic. I'm very excited for him, um, and I'll like save all of that excitement, put it in a jar, and like give it to him as a retirement present if he can't if he hasn't quite like tapped into it or mustered it himself. Yeah. Yeah, I know some um, people like they yeah. retire and then they feel like depressed. You know, they're uh, yeah. One woman, he'll show, you know, before COVID, she would come back just to do stuff around the office because she's mm. like, I have nothing to do. You know, yeah, my yeah. God, like, you know, I, I never thought of retirement that way. But I mean, that's an important yeah. thing because a lot of older people do feel not needed or you know, superfluous. Yeah. There's no work for them. There's gen genuine ageism that goes on and stuff like that. Right. Minimize the reality of like some of the hardships that come with being older. But again, I mean, there are ways to equip yourself. You know, if society won't give it to you. There are ways to equip yourself to deal with those kinds of challenges, whether it's ageism or racism or just being an outcast for political reasons, or whatever. You know, there there are ways yeah. to yourself to kind of manage life's ebbs and flows, um, such that you're always kind of you know, it's, your happiness is always on you. It's about you. It's coming, emanating from you. And it's not because of anything else, you know, or because of what, how external circumstances are. Yeah. Instead of that song, respect yourself. No, is that what it even, the lyric even is? I'm, I'm thinking like, equip yourself. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> like put that on our album, whenever we make a philosophical. <laughs> when we make our band we're recording oh, oh my god i've committed to being so many bands oh my god <laughs> yeah yeah I'm, I'm sucking you in is there anything else that you would like the world to know anything else that you would like to say that we haven't covered i think people should read a book called the shallows by nicholas carr and it's all okay. it's like the shallows and it's like how the internet is affecting our mind or something he has a kind of negative uh, conclusion but the argument that he gives and the um the studies that he provides are unbelievable and he talks basically the whole book is about how different technologies um affect how our brain actually is so he talks about neuroplasticity and using actual studies um and so he talks about for instance how our uh, our brains were when we didn't have a write, like a written tradition. It was more of an oral tradition. And he goes through the development of books and what books were like in the beginning, which is actually really hilarious. And then the kind of changes that this made in terms of how we lived our life. And then when what happened when people started reading. And so this uh, unbelievable thing happened where our brain started to shift its power, so to speak, on paying attention and being attentive and focusing and all the things that we value about critical thinking. So in a way, it sort of kind of made space for critical thinking to be accessible to the general population and not just to an elite. And then with the invention of the internet, then this different kind of thing happened where we went back to almost this more scatterbrained, you know, multitasking sort of brain, but which compromises our ability uh, to think in a way that would be useful for critical thinking. And again, it's kind of a really negative thesis. But mm. I think book is really good to read because then you get a glimpse of what um is happening in like neuro, like you know neuro studies and how our brain works and how the information we feed it can actually change how we think um mm. so i don't I, I think it's a good thing to read because when people are talking about critical thinking or philosophy or these existential things or whatever i don't think they realize how much power they have over how your mind works and that you mm. can thing so he's trying to give this argument about reading is actually really important and not just because of a way to absorb information but because there's something about having a page 
there's nothing else going on. There's nothing flashing. There's no hyperlinks. You're not going down a rabbit hole. You are just literally silently focusing on a page. And that if you do this a lot, you actually can reclaim the power of your mind to pay attention, which I think mm. without paying attention and without the ability to focus, there is no hope for critical thinking. That's it. If, if, if you, anybody has bought my story about why critical thinking is really important, especially in a day and age like today where bad thinking is going to maybe lead us to some sort of psychotic war or something, like if you really see the virtues of critical thinking, you have to first reclaim the, your ability to focus and then second, mm. reclaim this, uh, this natural ability to be humble that, you know, which I think is also part of kind of slowing down and saying, I don't know everything. What is mm -hmm. there to know? And now I have the ability to even pay attention so that I can start taking the steps that's needed to learn how to make good judgment. And so mm -hmm. I would recommend that book. Not again, not because I agree with the, the conclusion. You can agree with it if you want. I mean, he wrote it because he found himself unable to pay attention to stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. Like I'm not thinking as well as I could. And then he found all of these examples in history where someone would move from, for instance, Nietzsche, he used to write by hand. And then when the typewriter came along, his writing changed and his ideas started to change. And he even said, there's something about the technology that's affecting how I'm thinking. And so he does this really good job of just going through history and going through lots of scientific studies where it talks about neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm beginning to think, I was talking about this with someone, I'm beginning to think that it's very likely, here's one of the disadvantages of critical thinking, is that, you know, I think it's going to become obsolete soon. We're creating a world in which critical thinking is not going to be that important. There's a really mm. good book by um, this uh, philosopher of technology at Oxford, his name is Luciano Floridi, and he wrote, he wrote, he wrote a lot of stuff, but he has one book that's supposed to be more mainstream, and mm. it's fourth revolution and he's talking about like how in the same way there's all these other revolutions like copernican revolution darwinian revolution there's now this fourth revolution which is the the um social landscape epistemic landscape all landscapes being catapulted now onto the scene of the internet basically mm -hmm. he, he refers to this this new phenomenon as on life like this this is our, our life now is online mm. important or whatever and you know when i was reading the book it's really, and he's more he's more of an optimist than that guy nicholas Carr that i was talking about but it occurred to me that the the way that the world is going to be very soon, and even maybe some sometimes now, we might not need critical thinking actually. Like you know, and I was beginning to think more about this idea I was telling you about clinical philosophy that mm -hmm. maybe that won't be such a problem if we had you know specialists and that was their job, almost in the way mm -hmm. that we have therapists and like you know they know everything about all the psychological research and psychiatry and stuff. And then when you have issues, mm -hmm. the, the the counselor and or the therapist may. They're, they have this expertise and they sort you out. But maybe that that's what's going to happen. That you know, the hope is that not that everyone's going to be good critical thinkers or anyone, but that there's just going to be that this is going to be a specialty that develops, like clinical philosophy, yeah. philosophical issues. Like we learn to distinguish what's like a psychological issue versus a philosophical issue, and that right. goes to the clinical philosopher and then those experts who are trained in it because that's what they like to do that they would be the ones who would sort those issues. Like I think the gender debates, for instance, that would be that would not be a debate if people understood this as a philosophical issue and not the issue mm -hmm. that they did it, like just people talking mm -hmm. to each other. And so I am beginning you know, to w wonder if that's gonna be, and Nicholas Carr in the book, he's very negative because he says, oh, we're gonna lose all of these, these critical thinking skills because of the internet. And he does consider one objection, which is, well, maybe our minds are going to work in such a way where critical thinking is not going to be a thing that we really need anymore because our world's going to be so different. He's throwing right. that objection out, but I think that's where we're going, that that's just not going to be a thing that's so important anymore. 
in which case, it, um, you know, I might still be around, but it's gonna be more of a, almost like, you know, it's gonna be obsolete, like writing calligraphy, where it's like, oh, that's yeah. cool to do that, but it's not essential. Yeah. Because even now, today, you can have a whole career and you don't have to be a good critical thinker. Whereas in the past, right. that wasn't as common. Like it was, critical thinking was definitely more, uh, more important to play more a role. Now it's like you just, right. in fact, if you think less critically, you'll do better. People read your articles. Exactly. You know? So, <laughs> so I one, I think like my whole kind of, uh, just to be completely honest, is like I want to be part of the society that like thinks critically. Like if that means that I have to go move to a little island and, you know, or like invite all of my people out here to the, to the desert, like that is like utopia for me. Like, and I just have to accept that for myself. But also much more important than that, um, it's been in my head a lot recently, um, trying to understand how many people are in the world so I was I'm really excited to uh, have my recording with Daniel tomorrow because he when we were checking in last week he was talking about how hard it is for humans people to just fathom how many how, how many billions of people how many millions of people there are on the planet just like like we're just our brains just aren't really meant to try and like have that kind of quantification and so the only thing that me personally, I can compare like the amount of humans to is like ants. And so when I see ants, you know, I just think, oh, you know, they make me creepy. They give me like the heebie-jeebies because there's so many of them. And that's just so many of them in this place. And so whenever I see like ant mounds, especially out here, I try and like associate that, associate humans with that and make this connection of like, this is how insignificant like my life is. It's just this one ant in this one pile in this one part of my driveway instead of like all the other hundreds of thousands of ones that are out there. So that's one, one piece of this. And another is um, we were watching the news because my mom watches it every day. Um, and they were talking about how Walmart had made some deal with TikTok and um, how you can now you will be able to watch TikTok and um, basically they're using it as an advertisement. So you watch somebody doing a TikTok and you say, "I want those pants." Tap on it and then you order the pants. And it just like immediately got me thinking of like some like Fifth Element style like anime shit where it's like that's just how society certain that's just how like the direction that society goes like if we're looking at these sci-fi movies that are like X number of years in the future, we see these people doing these like seemingly weird like entertaining things where you know whether we're talking about logan's run or whatever it's like you see you get to like swipe through like actual people or you see just people doing like weird with bright colors and like me personally you know watching sci-fi movies it's just like is that really like what the future is going to be like but i see that transition happening and to bring that back to like you know the billions of people on earth it's like if we have that many people we can't have everybody doing this really tough thinking all of the time like that is just not the way that like i don't, I don't want a bunch of memes i mean I, I i love myself but like fuck that like life is a lot more enjoyable when people aren't thinking so hard most of the time so so it kind of would make some sense that, yeah, I mean, I don't want to admit it, but yeah, there's going to be probably more people who aren't doing this mental heavy lifting than people who are. Well, that's fine. I don't think everybody should be, I think, I think the problem is that it's not considered a thing that should be valued. So of, mm. course, I mean, yeah, of course, everybody's not going to be critical thinking. 
and and even I don't think everyone should be critically thinking. Life would be really crappy if we did we were. It's just that when we are making decisions, it should be valued that you make a decision well. That's what I'm concerned about. Because mm-hmm. that's why so many terrible things happen because people aren't considering what other options exist. They're not considering mm-hmm. another perspective. They're locked in one way of thinking and they are willing to go to the death because of this, this way of thinking, which actually doesn't matter that much or doesn't have that much difference from another person who's standing mm-hmm. right next to them. So my concern is that our quality of life is actually um, decreasing because of it. So, so and again, it's like, yeah, I mean, I, 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 first of all, I don't think everyone's equipped to be great critical thinkers or whatever, but it's just yeah. for me, it's more of a concern that it's not considered something that should be valued, especially when now minor decisions actually have huge effects. So in the past, mm-hmm. more local kind of ways of living. So if someone makes a bad decision, it affects that community, right? We live in such a connected world now that if you have one community let's say one nation state make a bad decision, this can have global effects. And that's right. actually why the environment is sucking right now. It's because right. one part of the world said, this is the way everybody has to live. And if not, you are a barbarian, non-modern piece of shit. And so yeah. now everybody in the world is trying to live in this, this very specific way, which is ridiculously unsustainable, even for that small group of people to live that way. Yeah. This one bad mistake in terms of thinking what life should look like is globalized. And now the entire fucking planet is in peril. And so that's a good, I, that's a good example of that's what happens when we don't value critical thinking, especially in the mm-hmm. world so interconnected. And so that's my concern that if we say, oh, gone to the wind with when it comes to who cares about how to make a good decision? It's just like, mm-hmm. what do you mean it doesn't matter how you make a good decision? Like, we, mm-hmm. it should matter to you whether you thought things out well, not just yeah. for you, but because this is now going to have an impact on lots of other people, maybe not the whole world, but lots of other people. And so this is scary to me. Um, and also, there's something really scary to me about not caring about the quality of your own life, especially when we are inundated with like, take this medication, this medication, 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 everyone's depressed, everyone's anxious, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, unlike calligraphy, which can go obsolete and it's not gonna affect our lives that much, critical thinking, I mean, thinking well, I mean, I think it's, like I said, I think it's very similar to, you know, working your body well. It's not a, it's not a coincidence that Socrates hung out at gyms. People used to think because Socrates was trying to pick up boys. Socrates actually was against having sex with your students. And in fact, one of the most beautiful dialogues on love and eroticism at the symposium, there's this, the, the famous Olympian Alcibiades, he's in love with Socrates. And he's like, Socrates, why won't you sleep with me? I am the sexiest, most handsome guy, uh, athlete, you know, in town. And then Socrates, gives this beautiful speech where he starts delineating the different kinds of loves and he makes a beautiful pun about um, with the word erotic and asking questions and he's like that's why you want to be around me I make you ask questions and I don't have answers blah 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 so um, the reason that Socrates hung out at gyms was because he thought people who understand the value of working something out and redeeming the um the the subjective quality of that so people for instance they would do the hard work on their body they understand that all of this hard work pays off because not just because you look good but because there's this feeling that i'm working my body the way that it should assuming you're able-bodied right and so he said i want to be around people who already have done that kind of exercise and that just see if they can make the minor leap to do it with their mind 
And so that's why he hung out in gymnasiums. He wanted to be around people who, first of all, they're young. And so these are people who are going to be more likely to deviate from the path that their parents set for them, which is just be rich, be a politician, blah, blah, blah. And he says, maybe young people are, if they, if I show them the light, they'll see that there's more to life than money and being popular and being this and this, but that maybe you want to be a good person. So he goes to young people and he goes to young people who are working out their body because he was saying what I'm telling you, saying now, which is you have actual real positive effects from using your body as you should and bad things happen when you don't use it like you should and there's something similar with the mind it's not like calligraphy or some other uh, things that go obsolete which is like well it's not you know too bad you know but if we lose uh this this exercise of the mind we are going to think have a devastating nihilistic uh mode of life which people are already yeah. seeing People yeah. spend their whole lives just watching entertainment, 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 drugs, 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 drinking, 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 buying shit, buying shit, buying shit. This is exactly what, what Nietzsche was saying in, when he was being optimistic. He said, we are the bridge unto ourselves. We can choose to transcend what we are, but we are also on the precipice of an extreme nihilism if we fall into this idea that we're going to buy things into happiness. He was afraid, actually, that when we, we let go of religion, that now we have nothing to fill the hole, that you need people who are going to think well to realize that there's a way to move beyond religion into something more positive. And he was afraid, actually. He said, there's two sides to this coin. On the one hand, we can, you know, we can transcend ourselves. On the other hand, we can descend into something way more aggressive than when we were thinking religiously. And I think mm. that's what he predicted exactly what's happening now, which is everybody is fucking empty and dead inside. And I think that, you know, I was trying to tell people, do logical exercises. It's hard in the beginning, but there is a lot of fun in using your mind. It feels good. Right. It feels your, your brain is doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is working, not just constantly absorbing lots of information, you know, yeah. constantly entertaining yourself in this kind of super mundane way. I'm not against watching Netflix or whatever, but I'm just, you know, that this can't be what our, our lives are like. And, and yeah. many people should understand that because a lot of people are feeling, not just because of COVID, a lot of people are feeling disconnected, depressed, anxious, stressed out that they're struggling existentially, right? To decide what to do. They have everything, you know, there's a really great book, um, Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. It's a bestseller. He wrote a book before that called Sapiens, the history of mankind. And so Homo Deus is the history of tomorrow. That's what he calls it. Mm. And he, he's, he gives this beautiful argument. He says, progress actually doesn't make people happier. Progress is independent of individual happiness. Progress mm. is something that we say with respect to the species. Our species is making immense progress. But as we progress, we're going to care less and less about the individual happiness. And you made a good argument that in the past, things were harder. It was easier to die from basic shit. But people were very connected. People had very defined roles. People had, you know, uh, like uh, staying with the same people their whole lives. There was more mm. meaning and purpose in their lives, even though they were struggling with things that we would now consider to be like, oh, that's basic shit, whatever. And he gives this argument that as this trajectory moves forward, you make the mistake of thinking that now we're going to be happier. And he says, there are going to be fewer and fewer people who are happier. And he just kind of mm. leaves it at that. Like species, you know, species improvement has nothing to do with individual improvement. You, like mm -hmm. you are just one ant among many who gives a shit if you're happy. It's about the species thriving because from a, you know, from a biological point of view, that's what matters. You want the species to thrive. And so right. as people who are those individual ants, we should be concerned about who gives a shit if we have all this progress and we can't stand waking up in the morning? We can't talk to a person next to us because who they voted for. We can't mm. we can't love this person anymore because of some pointless difference in our like how we think about things. Like this is actually this is this is an existential crisis. This is scary. Yeah. On that note. <laughs> <laughs>
if you don't feel like killing yourself already right right no and what's funny is that like I dealt with a lot of shit today like literal because today was a compost day and I basically haven't done any composting <laughs> sorry I haven't done any composting this month. And so it turns out like I had six buckets to clean and then all of the poop, the dog poop to pick up in the yard. Um, plus like, you know, coffee grounds and like, you know, the table scraps. So just had like, I filled up an entire bin. Um, thank goodness I got two, but, um, so it's a lot of time to think. And then I also had to like make more like pre-compost like stuff. So it's just like all the shit stuff today. And so I, you know, was just reflecting on stuff and reflecting on the year and how, how important composting has been for me as far as thinking of like my purpose in life and, and how, um, I mean, it's one thing like turning shit into dirt is, is just really like mind blowing and amazing for me because I'm a modern woman, but, um, also, I mean, just taking responsibility for how much shit I'm putting into the world. Like I go from using, you know, a flush toilet to my composting business. And like when I'm at, when I'm on my <laughs> bucket, I'm like, Oh, I can use all the toilet paper I want because I know that it's going to break down or I know what I have to do in order to break it down. But if I'm on a flush toilet, I'm like, Oh, I don't want to clog the thing. I don't want to, I don't know if this is going to, I don't know what's going to happen. It's like a really, <laughs> you know, kind of funny, like not so much dilemma, but it's a, it's a funny thing to think about. Um, but it's something that, you know, since people are so disconnected from that process, um, whether we're talking about our shit or, you know, other trash that we make, you know, since people are so disconnected from that process, it's just not even, you know, tied into what they think they're doing with their life, what they're considering they're doing with their life. It's just like, well, no, that's just, I, I, is it Monday? I need to take the garbage to the curb. Like, what are, what are we talking about? Kind of thing. Um, but yeah, hopefully people don't want to like give up on existing here at the end. I love you. <laughs> I love you too. We should have ended on a positive note, but it's just, oh yeah. Oh, well.